Today, uh, today we'll pick up with talking about the righteousness of God, and from there we'll talk about the wrath of God. Remember, as we began, we began with Romans 8, which is a midpoint of the book of Romans, and it begins with, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Praise the Lord. And that is our center point and theme, that the gospel is the gospel of God and the righteousness is the righteousness of God, generously given to us along with himself, and there is no greater gift. And in him is life. We looked at Romans chapter 1, and we got in our next message, halfway through verse 1, we talked about Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus. You're not a Christian in the sense that society normally means it when they say, I got saved, or that person's a Christian. Biblically, what you really are is you have a new identity, and that's you belong to God, you're loved by God, you're called to be saints, and you are a bondservant of Christ Jesus. Think of yourself less as a Christian in the societal, kind of traditional, even in the church evangelical sense, uh, or Catholic sense. Think of yourself as a bondservant of Christ Jesus. That's a better biblical definition for who you really are and who you were born to, to live and to that's the calling you have been called into, and God has prophesied your destiny that you would be sanctified and holy. And to begin with, he's clothed you with his own holiness, so you are safe. For there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, even though we sin. So we'll talk about the righteousness of God, and we have at length. And from here, we'll move to the wrath of God. But we cannot talk about the wrath of God without talking about his holiness. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. In our country, we don't understand the holiness of God. And that is why we don't understand the wrath of God. But the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Romans 1.16. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Whoops. I, it's very small print. I have a cataract. Romans 1.16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. That's a quote. It's from Habakkuk. And we'll go there. Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4. If you're fast, you'll get there before I will. Miss Obadiah Jewel. Habakkuk. Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4 says, The righteous shall live by his faith. And I'm not going to go in and read the whole passage. But if you do later, Habakkuk 2.4, 
We read the second half of verse 4. The first half of verse 4 contrasts this righteous person who's living by faith with this unrighteous person whose soul is puffed up. And chapter 5 talks about how he's a drunkard. He's an arrogant man. He's never at rest. His greed, his, like, death, he, he... Before and after this half a verse that Paul quotes, the righteous shall live by his faith, is a description of the other guy, the unrighteous man, who, who is all of the things that we're about to see beginning in Romans 1.18. And that's why Paul quotes Habakkuk 2.4. Because tucked in the middle of the unright, this picture of the unrighteous man and the wrath of God that is revealed against him is a promise that the righteous shall live by faith. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known, what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible qualities namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking. What does futile mean? Have you ever watched Star Trek? There are these, let's just say, bad guys, and they're very powerful, and they say, resistance is futile. You may as well surrender. You're wasting your time. Their thinking is a waste of time. And their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men, likewise, gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And... Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind. To a debased mind. Think, so one of the religions of this world is, is that humankind, mankind is ascending. We've been ascending. We started in the slime and the pool of proteins and you know, nucleic acids and whatever, and we, and we have been ascending to, 
from frog to lizard to, to ape to man. And what's next? Gods, right? That's, it's our, our destiny is up. We're on the ascent. This was the religion of the Nazis. They were, they had, they were a little farther along than all the scum of the earth. But God gave them up to a D-based mind. Think a D-evolved mind. We are not evolving up. Gave them up to a D-based mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, and malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, though they knew God's right, though they knew God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them, to the point that in our culture, it's socially inappropriate to call sin, sin. It's considered inappropriate, and this is a sign of how bad uh, the nation we live in has become, as, as has been the direction of every, uh, every evil nation that God has given up until its ultimate and inevitable demise of destroying each other and being destroyed from within. One of the ultimate signs of God's judgment on a nation, a society, an individual, is when it's no longer appropriate to be angry at sin. And that's us. This has been happening, this exchange and being given up. They exchange, they exchange, they exchange. Therefore, God gave them up. God gave them over. God gave them up. That, this is a picture of how the wrath of God works. For the Lord is a God of righteousness. That's both holiness and justice. It's both mercy and judgment. You cannot know God if you don't know him as both a wrathful God and a generously merciful God. For there is no mercy without law and breaking of that law and forgiveness. There's no mercy unless there's something evil out there that God has to have mercy on us for. But the problem, as we are seeing here in Romans 1, is that the evil isn't out there, is it? It's in here. You can't read Romans 1 and stop at that last verse verse 32, and think, wow, idolaters, wow, homosexuals. Thank God that we're not like them. Thank God that we're safe inside these church walls and it's so bad out there. The main point of Romans chapter 1 
we see in chapter 2, verse 1, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. And you say, I don't worship idols, and I don't practice homosexuality or whatever. Hmm. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who practice such things, and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? So there's a sinner out there, or maybe there's a sinner in here, and you know it, and, and, and it just, you just, you just, I mean, you pray God has mercy on them, but thank God I'm not like her. Thank God I'm not like him. Do you think of sinners as basically unlike you or as basically like you? If you've read Romans, you think the latter. God's, the riches of God's kindness and forbearance and patience, that is, God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. But because of your hard and impenitent, that means not sorry, because of your hard and not sorry heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. So there's a day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed, and there's wrath now in and all through the societies of humankind around the world. And this is nothing new. It says, he will render to each one according to his works, to those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. Chapter 3. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Chapter 3, verse 23 for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This exchange, exchanging God for lie, pleasure, false God, me, whatever I, to the nth degree, and God giving them up to the desires of their heart is nothing new. Israel did it. Turn to Psalm 81. Psalm 81, verse 10. It's 
a song for Israelites to sing, for all the people of God to sing. Psalm 81, verse 10. I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide and I will fill it. Think of hungry and thirsty for righteousness. But my people did not listen to my voice. Israel would not submit to me, so I gave them over. There it is. I gave them up. I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own counsels. What's your own counsel? How are decisions made in a, in a corporation with a board of directors? How, uh, how does a, an old-fashioned king make decisions? By himself, no. With many counselors, there's wisdom. With, with the whole board, there's a vote. Your own counsels are, hmm, I think this is right. And, the, and I'm the person who decides what's good and evil. I'm the person who passes judgment. I know what's best for me. I know right from wrong. That's, have you ever watched a Disney movie? <laughs> Every Disney movie teaches with anointing, with, uh, with an evangelism that is rather powerful, um, I need to follow my, I, it would be wrong of me to not follow my heart. And I mean, I'm not actually trying to make a joke, I'm just very serious. I, it, you know, this, this would be funny if it weren't so real and didn't hit close to, so close to my home, to each one of us. But we were raised in this culture, right? And this is, this is how we think. And let's read on. Psalm 81. Oh, that my people would listen to me, that Israel would walk in my ways. I would soon subdue their enemies and turn my hand against their foes. Those who hate the Lord would cringe toward him. Another translation says uh, they, would, they would fake it. They'd, they'd come pretending. They'd be like, yeah, I'm on your side. And their fate would last forever. But he would feed you with the finest of the wheat. And with honey from the rock, I would satisfy you. That's what has always been in the heart of the Lord for all his people and for all the nations. Oh, that my people would listen to me. He would feed you with the finest of the wheat. And with honey from the rock, I would satisfy you. Why did God create honey? Why did God make wheat grow up out of the ground so that we could make fresh bread? In the Bible, bread is for life and nourishment and strength. And the world is covered with cereal grasses. And, and there's honey and good things and and there, there are delights throughout the world. In every ecosystem, there's a variety of delights because that's who, that comes out of who God is. And in every society, there's this, this inherent waywardness. And, and we, we grow from infancy to adulthood with the, with the conscience inside, the internal witness and the external uh, majesty of God revealed in all of creation from microbe to, to, uh, to outside the visible universe. 
And, and the glory of God is revealed from the heavens to the atom. And, and yet we exchange the truth of God for meism or, or for, for following our heart and wherever that leads us. And in every society, it's a little different. But in every society apart from Christ, it consistently, why? Why in every society does no one find Christ, even though the knowledge of God is revealed in conscience? You ever heard of natural law? Everybody's heard of, everybody has a conscience. Consciences can be seared. That's what's happening in Romans 1. The righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel of the Son of God. The wrath of God is revealed. They knew Their conscience bears them witness. Reason bears witness. We know that life doesn't come from non-life. There's a famous experiment. I I don't know if Catherine uh, mentioned it, but a scientist in the era of which she recently spoke did an experiment. The, The idea was popular, spontaneous generation in those centuries. You know, uh, where do flies come from? Well, flies come from rotten meat. So he's like, no, no, the scientist, and he, and he got a jar, he got a couple of jars, and he put rotten meat in one, he put rotten meat in the other one, and he covered the one jar. And the jar that was uncovered, flies came out of it. Did he see the flies come in and lay their eggs? No, um, but that meat, sure enough, grew maggots, which became flies. Life out of something dead. That was the general consensus. Well, we know that's the general consensus today. And we know that is foolishness. We did not evolve apart from the power of God and the breath of God breathing life into Adam. We did not evolve from non-living things. It's not possible. Were there flies in the jar that was sealed? Of course not. And that was the experiment that changed the paradigm of the day. And for a long time then, people began to believe that life doesn't come from non-life, but our foolish hearts are darkened. And now we've started to believe that again. No. Think of the foolishness of that. We're talking about life. Life is spiritual and relational and active and moving and growing. And it, God is the source and the root of all life. Something doesn't come from nothing. Creation bears witness. Why did God give you a sense of wonder when you look at that which is majestic, at that which is beautiful, at that which amazes? That too can be seared or suppressed or squelched, but everybody's got that or did have it. Why did God give you that? Because God is lovely, and God is majestic, and beautiful, and amazing. But he gave it to you as a witness inside you to know him, so that you'd look out there, and you'd be in awe. And and your heart would testify to you of the knowledge of God. But in Romans 1, we see that though they had internal and external knowledge of God, though we, find, though we find God in moral law and conscience and in nature, we reject the truth, believing 
we can live our lives any way we want without any consequences at all. A pastor by the name of John MacArthur preaches on this passage, and I quote him. He says, and we plunge downward under the wrath of God. Man's problem is not that he can't find God. It's that we don't want to. To honor God would then cause us to be accountable to him and to his law, and then be accountable to his wrath. We would then be under his judgment. They rejected God's revelation, then they lost their reason. It's a kind of losing their minds. They lost their ability to evaluate whether they were right or wrong. They became spiritually confused. They de-evolved in mind, in morals, in heart, and in religion. Look at this. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. They worshipped idols. They made them with their hands, perhaps, or found them in the heavens and worshipped the sun. Or if uh, in ancient Greece, the, the human body was kind of reverenced to, the, to a degree, of, to a level of worship. Um, now we have many forms of worshiping the created thing. Whether we worship that desire for satisfaction for our own passions that is within us, um, or whether we worship an ideal thing that is imaginary, a false a false ideal, a made-up form of perfection that fallen man will never attain to. Um, That's kind of in the spirit of uh, certain flavors of environmentalism, for example, uh, of of this Mother Earth thing, where the Earth is our mother and we are spontaneously generated out of its ever-living, never-created life, and we can become, we can attain to, we can realize goodness and perfection in society and in our own soul. Uh, This nirvana, all of it, it's all false. It's all fake. These are ideas, doctrines of demons that are set up against the knowledge of God. There is no greater depth to which one can plunge morally and mentally than the depravity of loose and unusual sexual indulgence and worship of a God other than Jesus Christ. Religion, apart from Christ, involves an exchange, exchanging the God who is the source of life for Satan and being content with that. There is no slimier, lower, baser form of life It's a lowering of ourselves. Sexuality with no boundaries, animal, people, male, female, male, male, whatever, all by myself. And worship of created things rather than the creator. Whether they're worshiping an idol they made, or the sun, or the gods of the religions of the world, or the gods of money, pleasure, unbridled self-expression. In wrath, God gave them over to their own desires. Is there anything worse that God could ever do to you than give you everything you want? If every whim, lust, temptation, passion, and urge 
was granted to you, it would quickly result in your life being trashed and you trashing the lives of others. That is the judgment of God. It is the righteous judgment of God, and God is vindicated in his judgment. Our generation hates the idea of holiness in it because we all want to be accepted and nobody's perfect. And our generation hates the idea of judging others, which is partly good and partly bad, because we exclude, we put God into that category, but God has the right to judge. Romans 1 and 2 examines individuals and societies whose hearts are full of darkness, given over to more darkness. It's the black hole of the soul. Idolatry, homosexuality, it's all manners of evil. C.S. Lewis in his book, The Great Divorce, which talks about how divorced or how different heaven and hell are, he says, hell is retrospective. Hell is there as you continue. We're, we're on roads that diverge, and this road is not the road to Jesus Christ. It's not the road to our Creator. It's the road to, uh, of the, the passions and desires of the heart. And God gives us over more and more and more, and that road doesn't ultimately lead to some big break, and God's like, all right, that's the last straw. Now I'm going to really judge you. It's a straight path to hell. And C.S. Lewis says, hell is retrospective. What we've read in Romans 1 is something like hell on earth. And God in his mercy does not let societies get too far down that road for too long. Eventually the cup of iniquity is filled and he makes them drink the cup of his wrath. And that results in the death of the society. Hell is retrospective. But I argue that heaven, likewise, is retrospective. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. It's God comes down. It's heaven invades earth. Here on earth, there is both the kingdom of Satan and the kingdom of God. There's both hell, the backtracking from that road, and there's heaven. Heaven is here on earth. He is here among us when we gather together in his name. The main emphasis of this passage about God's wrath, which is righteous wrath, is found in chapter 2, verse 1. We, you have no excuse, every one of you, because you practice the very same things. We are more like these people than we are unlike them. The epitome of our problem is that we think we're not. The problem is that there's self-righteousness in the church. And what is God's response to hypocrisy? Kindness and judgment. Praise the Lord. The default position of my heart is prone to wander. There are good people, and that can trip us up. Because even if we're good, in the sense that someone might say, he's a good man, unless we, we, come to the realization that we need a savior, we are already separated from God. Like a branch that was born broken off, never connected. 
That's the default uh, nature of every person who is born, a branch disconnected from the tree and the root from which life comes. That's how people get to hell. They don't acknowledge God or give thanks to him. That leads into a downward spiral of evil and self-deception, leading to death, and God's judgment piles high. So this message is for Christians, and it's a call to see our own sin and know that we need Jesus every day. The opposite of evil is not doing good. The opposite of doing evil is not doing good. It is being connected to the vine, which always results in good fruit, the peaceful fruit of righteousness. We're not thinking, I'm a bad person. We're thinking that we can get by on how righteous we already are or can become. Remember the Pharisee and the tax collector. Which one was righteous? The guy that actually was externally in some sort of way, without his, you know, with a rotten heart, externally pretty washed up, uh, pretty cleaned up. Uh, no, the, the, the traitor, the traitor to his own society, to his own people, was the one that went home justified that day. Even when we're doing things with good, good things, with good intentions, when we're not doing them for him, to him, with him, then they're apart from him. He is the vine. We are the branches. He is life. If we're connected to the Father through Jesus by the Spirit, then we are alive. And the good things we do are pleasing to God because there's life in them. When a person is not rooted and grounded in Christ and grafted or connected into Christ's church, then it's not just the faithless, self-seeking, and evil deeds of Romans 1 and 2 that bring us into God's wrath. In fact, all our deeds are evil because they're dead for the person who is disconnected from the living one. That's what our generation gets hung up on. Life does not come from non-life. A branch that is cut off from God is dead, and its dead fruit is nothing but rot and decay. Every person who is separated from God is already well along down the road to eternal separation from God. What is God's response to rejecting him? Turning us over to whatever we want. And brothers and sisters, Let's be honest. What we want is pretty consistently evil, too. So they said they were wise. Think about the foolishness of all that. How do you relate to that? How do we in the church relate to those outside the church? The same way Jesus related to the cross. He despised the shame but for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. You despise the sin, knowing that God is right in condemning all those who sin. And you cry out to God to have mercy on that person who is made in the image of God. We do not make jokes about our homosexual neighbors and say, oh, that's gay. No, we wouldn't do that. That's disrespectful. They are made in the image of God like you. Further, Cut out sarcasm from your vocabulary, because for us who are safe in Christ, there is now no condemnation. 
God wants you to become an expert at not criticizing others. My favorite character trait of our father is that he is fatherly. He adopts those who were not his own, declares them to belong to him, fights off Satan, sanctifies us through and through, that's your destiny, O Christian, overcoming the power of my sinful desires and turning my affection toward him. He is fatherly. And biblically, a father is a man who blesses and empowers, right? A father gives benediction. A father prophesies good things over his wife and children. He, the Lord, my father, never tears me down. He breaks me and builds me up for my own good. He disciplines me. He takes me through suffering, but he never leaves me nor forsakes me. He is with me. And in being chastised by God, I see the sign of my acceptance. But he never tears me down. And I want to be like that. That is how we relate to wicked, foolish, blatant sinners. Your prayer life for your coworkers and family members and neighbors who are not bondservants of Christ Jesus may be, Father, forgive them, for I'm no better than them. But you were pleased to save me, were you not? Please save them also. I can remember sitting at my dining room table as a boy hundreds of times and hearing my father pray for every single one of our relatives. Kim and Chris and Andrea, Gary and Judy, Keith, Katie and Kevin. Start the family tradition of praying for specific people you work with, live with, go to church with, and pray for the same people thousands of times. The earnest prayer of a righteous person avails much. Elijah was a man like us, and he prayed. When I pray, I pray first for myself, because I'm the person I'm most concerned about falling into temptation. Because I've read Romans, and I know that if Jesus weren't standing between me and this hellish lifestyle described, I also would have been given up to following the desires of my deceitful heart, Jeremiah 17.9. My dark and dark and foolish I would have become. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, the Holy One for the ungodly. This is the gospel of a father who loved his wayward children and was so committed to them that he did the most loving thing anyone has ever done, and he gave his son for us. And now, having been raised from the dead by the spirit of holiness, he has been given authority to judge all mankind. And because he himself suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. There is now no condemnation for us who are in Christ Jesus. It is not in God's nature to condemn the guiltless. And there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. The old rule or the old law was, you sin, you deserve condemnation, you are condemned. But God has done what the old rule, 
weakened by the flesh could not do, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the rule might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Our main point is that we need him to save us from our sin every day. Abiding in Christ is salvation because Christ is the source of eternal salvation. So Christians, abide in him. Ignoring God, not giving thanks to him who gave you everything good you've ever had, or exchanging the truth about God for a lie is a sin that leads to death, and then he passes judgment by giving them up to more sin, which leads to more death and deathly things. That is a life of hell that leads to more hell. But are you a child of God who has not been acknowledging God or giving thanks to him for all things? You need to start by acknowledging him in the morning and begin to thank him. Are you a child of God who is struggling with real, present, and dangerous sin? Join the countless Christians before you who placed no trust in their own faithfulness and placed all their trust in his faithfulness. Cry out to God for daily forgiveness and daily empowerment. God believes in you. Jesus says to you, Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. Abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. 1 John chapter 2. You are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. 1 John chapter 4. See what love the Father has given to us, that we should be called the children of God. And so we are. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. Let's be honest. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. And that is the message of Romans 1 and 2. At this time, would our communion servers please come forward. And may everyone stand for our communion meditation from the Psalms. In the Bible, bread is broken and shared for nourishment and strength. Psalm 81, verse 10 and 16, I am the Lord your God. Open your mouth wide and I would fill it. Oh, that my people would listen to me. He would feed you with the finest of the wheat. I would satisfy you. Bread is for satisfaction and strength. And there is no greater strength, nor greater satisfaction that comes from partaking of the bread of life, Jesus, our Savior, who saves us from God's wrath.
In Psalm 75, the wicked drink the cup of judgment. In the hand of the Lord, there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drink it down to the dregs. Psalm 75, 8. But because in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed in that Christ became a curse for us by drinking the cup of God's wrath. When we drink this cup, we are not drinking a curse, but a blessing. When we drink this cup, we remember our Lord's death until he comes. And to us, he has passed a cup of wine that is for fellowship and joy. Psalm 104, verse 15, wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. In the Bible, wine is for wrath and wine is for joy. Praise the Lord. Please stand for our benediction. May the Holy Spirit keep you in the love of God and the fellowship of Christ Jesus forever and ever. Amen.